Well, hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Hyperion Adventures podcast. I'm Tom. As always, I'm here with my wonderful, beautiful Star Wars loving life, <laughs> Star Wars loving wife, Michelle. Hello, everybody. So good to have you with us. We are recording this episode on Sunday, March 24th. 2019, and it's a fun day. We're going to have a lot of fun on this podcast, as we always do. Oh, absolutely. Looking forward to talking about the Star Wars and the series that we're going to be doing about that, and we have some other fun news to talk about. That's right. Fun stuff, as we always have for you. So much Disney news, so much fun. We enjoy bringing this to you every single week. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. In the future, you can find us Everywhere you can get podcasts, or I think everywhere. If we've, there's some place that you usually get podcasts and you can't find us, let us know. We would love to find a way to get on that site. Uh, of course, you can find us on our own website, HyperionAdventuresPodcast.com. Uh, that's a great way to find us. And you can always find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And subscribe to us. That's the best way to get our podcasts. Right. And we'd like to hear from you as well. Yes, we'd love hearing from our Hyperion adventurers. And we had a really, really sweet note from uh, one of our listeners out there today. Uh, this was from, uh, actually from Instagram. And you can find us on Instagram at Hyperion Adventures Podcast. This came from at Vinyl and Disney. Uh, they posted a, a nice uh, picture of our our podcast logo on their Instagram story uh, with the caption, Family time listening to our new fave podcast at Hyperion Adventures Podcast. It was so nice. That was so sweet. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I contacted them. His friend came from Jonathan, who is at Vinyl and Disney on Instagram, and his wife, Camille, who is at Disney Bound and Down on Instagram. And uh, also listening with them is their two year old daughter, Lorelai. They're out of Portland, Oregon. And they were just such a sweet thing for them to say. That's really nice. And we're so glad that you listened to us. Thank you. Absolutely. It was very touching. And thanks so much for reaching out for us because uh, we really love hearing from people and, and your story really touched us. Yeah, so we really appreciate all our Hyperion adventurers and you can always find us and get in contact with us on social media as they did on Instagram, also on Facebook at Hyperion Adventures Podcast. We have a lot of fun on Twitter with a lot of the great Disney podcasts and a lot of great other Disney friends. You can find us there on uh, on Twitter at Hyperion Podcast and of course you can always email us anytime you want if you just want to say something about the show, if you want to offer some topics if you want to answer any of our questions, if you have something just to share about the show, we would love to uh, give you credit for it and, and, and mention you on the show. And uh, you can always email us at HyperionAdventuresPodcast at gmail.com. Yes. And as we've said in the past, we really do appreciate the input we're getting from people. We've done some tweaks as a result of that or added some things, I should say. But uh, we really appreciate it. And as you mentioned with uh, social media and other podcasts out there, we, we really are a great family and we enjoy each other and a special shout out to again to Trent and Jenny from DNA podcast for letting us be on their show. That was a real treat and honor. And uh, I actually felt nervous. Ah, It was so nice being on with them. They were so welcoming. They were warm and welcoming though. We came on their show and that show, I think will be coming out. They recorded, we recorded, we talked about it last week. We recorded it last week. I think that show for them will be coming out. I think it might be this week, but we'll let you know as soon as that show debuts and uh, you can find us on that. And we had a great time with Trent and Jenny. They're just, they're just great people. Wonderful, wonderful Disney fans and warm people. And and they have a great podcast to listen to as well. Yes. So if you like our podcast, 
podcast. You'll love their podcast right. for sure. So check them out as well. So lots of stuff for you today, including uh, we visited the 2019 California Food and Wine Festival out at Disney California Adventure Park. Uh, yes. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Of course, Toy Story 4 released their first full trailer this week. We're going to talk a little bit about that and some fun stuff that's coming to the Epcot to Epcot at the Walt Disney World Resort as right. well. But our, I'm excited. Let's move this. Let's on. move it. I know I'm taking too long. <laughs> let's get to our exciting topic. So we decided long ago we're building up to Star Wars Episode Nine at the end of the year. That is said to be the end of the Skywalker saga. So we decided, hey, why don't we build up to it by once a month looking back at these Star Wars films? We put it out there online on a Twitter poll. Should we do all the films or should we do just the Skywalker saga? And we got back. Nope. Do all the films. Right. So that means we're doing Solo, a Star Wars story, and Rogue One, a Star Woo-hoo! Wars story as well, which I know is one of Michelle's favorites for sure. And then we put it out there. And how should we do this? You know, should we follow out the theatrical release date? Should we do the machete order, if you know what that is? Or should we do the Star Wars timeline? And it was overwhelmingly in our Twitter poll, Star Wars timeline. So that leads us to where we're starting today. And that means we're going back all the way to episode one. The Phantom Menace. You refer to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the Force. You believe it's this boy? He can see things before they happen. He can help you. The Force is unusually strong with him. He was meant to help you. What does your heart tell you? Are you sure about this? Trusting our fate to a boy we hardly know? Anakin Skywalker, meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. I sense much fear in you. The boy is dangerous. They all sense it. Why can't you? Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate? It's just suffering. So, yes, we're going back. We're looking at episode one, The Phantom Menace, back when they went back and did the prequels. This was released in 1999, May 19th, 1999, to be exact. So this year is actually the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace. So that's exciting. Yeah. And we wanted to bring on, since we're always, when we talk Star Wars, since we are the Disney podcast that desperately wants to be a Star Wars podcast, (laughs) we wanted to bring in one of our Star Wars experts. And of course, that is our good friend, Rob LeBerry. He is, of course, host of the Jedi Temple's Archives podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, give it a shot. Let's bring Rob in, in right now. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, yeah, he'll tell you at the end of it how we can, you can find the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. It's a really cool podcast. It's actually focused yeah. on, yes, the Star Wars universe, but it's kind of in an approachable way. You don't have to be a complete nerd, only a little nerd like we are, <laughs> to kind of get into it. But the, also, his focus is a lot on uh, the backstory behind Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, correct, Rob? 
yeah, right now that uh, is a lot of the information that's coming out, uh, and there's a lot of Star Wars fans and Disney fans in general that are looking forward to experiencing that land. So uh, what we're trying to do is lay in the groundwork so that when people walk into Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, they feel like they can uh, fit right into the storyline and they know what's going on, who the the uh, various shop owners and uh, various characters that they're going to run across in that land are, and uh, hopefully it's just going to enhance their experience within Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Absolutely. We've already enjoyed it. I know Michelle's enjoyed listening to it on her drive home a couple times. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, you know, for somebody who loves watching Star Wars and and kind of looks at it as like a picture, right? You're seeing just, you know, an image and, and feelings and not necessarily getting into all the details of who's who maybe or whatever um this has been listening to your podcast rob has been great because i don't feel stupid and i come out feeling like enriched and i like the 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 movies and everything about star wars so much more well, I'm really glad that uh, that it comes across that way. Certainly, I want it to appeal to people who are Star Wars fans that may or may not have watched a lot of the additional content, the shows, or you know potentially read the books. But um, I do know that there's a lot of things within the Star Wars universe that are just kind of glazed over in the films. Um, and a lot of people are kind of curious about more of the background of that, and Galaxy's Edge is just going to take that to a whole other level. Um, but we want this to be accessible and approachable. I know that there's a lot of people who have young children that are up and coming. Right. Star Wars fans, and if and if this makes it easier for those kids to understand the world that they're going to be experiencing within Galaxy's Edge, or even just the films and the and the movies and any books they may read, um, then we're doing our job. Absolutely, yeah. so really good, really enjoy. It. You should definitely check it out. Again, it's the Jedi Temple Archives podcast, and we will uh, have Rob explain all the ways you can find it uh, when we get done with this segment. But let's get back to our topic, and that is Looking Back, Star Wars Remembered, a look back at Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And I'm going to start right at the beginning, before this even came out, and we're going to look at uh, before the, when the hype started, when everything kind of got rolling for this, and how it started was, you know, uh, in the 90s, of course, we, you know, Star Wars hadn't had a film released since 1983 when Return of the Jedi came out. Uh, and then it kind of you know went by the wayside a little bit near the late 80s. But in the 90s, there was kind of this Star Wars resurgence. And I think a, a couple things played a part in that. One was there were some of the books that are now... Uh, you know, they're on the legends uh, list within Star Wars that came out, and notably, probably the biggest one was the Thrawn trilogy. Uh, really drew some excitement out there, drew back some Star Wars fans into the universe again. And there was also some stuff with Dark Horse comics that came out at about the same time. Rob, I think you'd agree that a lot of this stuff kind of rebuilt the excitement into Star Wars. Oh, absolutely. And I know that also feeding into the prequel trilogy coming out was the fact that uh, George Lucas had put out the special edition of the original movies and uh, put those out in the theaters and the amount of business and the amount Mm -hmm. of uh, fans that those drew into the theaters was definitely kind of uh, a sign to them that going into the prequel stories was going to be something that the fans were really clamoring for. Right. Absolutely. So in 1993, Lucas officially announced, hey, we're doing this thing. We're going to do the Star Wars prequel trilogy. And everybody just went nuts because it's like, yes, more Star Wars. That's so exciting. So they, you know, they wrote it up. Eventually, it took a little time, uh, tried to figure out who was going to write it, who was going to direct it. Eventually, it ended up being on George himself. He wrote, he directed this film. Filming began in 1997, and the first trailer debuted in November of 1998 with the film Meet Joe Black. You heard a bit of that trailer as we started off the show here. Uh, The interesting thing about that trailer is that uh, 
it's like 70% of the people that went to go see Meet Joe Black just went in to watch the trailer and then walked right out afterwards. <laughs> I think that's pretty right, funny. Right, I remember so. that. Yes. So that, that's how excited people were for this film and maybe not so much for Meet Joe Black, apparently. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it's so funny. that I even saw reports that they eventually the theaters were playing it at the end of the film, too, just to try and make people stick around <laughs> to the end of the movie they, so you can stick around and watch the trailer once again. So... I don't know about you guys, but I was really excited. I couldn't, I ate up everything as it was coming out. The trailers, I was so excited. Uh, the music, they released a music video with, with one of the, the songs that we'll talk about in a little bit here, but, uh, just really cool. Michelle, I don't know what you think about it. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, yeah, there was a lot of hype and couldn't wait to, you know, get to see the, uh, some more of this, you know, wonderfully epic universe of Star Wars. Yeah. Rob? Yeah. Yeah, obviously, I know what you're talking about in regards to the music video, and we'll certainly get to that in a minute, but they also had released a a series of probably five or six different uh, short little promo clips uh, for the various characters that were involved. They had one for Padme, and Mm -hmm. um, Jar Jar, I think, had one, Um, but those were definitely something that kind of started to give you a little bit of a glimpse into what they were going to be doing, and people were starved for new Star Wars content, especially in the theaters, so I think they were feeding into... uh, you know, that desire by the fan base to see some new movies. Yes, and the internet was just kind of getting started right around that time, at least uh, in widely spread. And so there was news and information that was starting to become aware out there to people regularly, although slowly, uh, <laughs> as it was mostly dial-up modems at that right. point. But uh, very interesting. I know I personally, this was, I had lined up for Star Wars in the 70s and 80s, uh, but I had never lined up for tickets. Well, this was the first time because they announced they're going to pre-release the tickets you were going to be able to purchase them ahead of time that I actually camped out for something besides a concert for tickets. I camped out at the theater. Uh, Actually, I had a friend that was going there early and then I'm going there early. I'm like, okay, I'll join you at around 6 a.m. And he got down there. He's like, no, you got to come down here now. So I headed down there at like 3.34 in the morning or whatever and got in this line and just sat there until the ticket office opened at 10 a.m. or whatever it was and got my tickets to the midnight screening wow. of the uh, the showing there and uh, was so excited about it. Exhausted, <laughs> but excited. I don't know if either of you experienced anything like that as well. Well, you know, I, I didn't actually camp out or try to get the tickets ahead of time, um, but I can certainly appreciate somebody doing that. Um, in Miami, it was a little bit tougher, I think, to have access. And, you know, I was a new mom then, too. But anyways, <laughs> I digress. I yeah, digress. What about true. you, Rob? <laughs> I, was, uh, I was in college at the time when it came out. So I definitely remember getting down there and getting in line early. It certainly wasn't in the middle of the night type situation. Um, but it was just... It, it was one of those things where you were on pins and needles because you just couldn't wait to see what they were going to come out with. Uh, the original trilogy was so amazing that, um, you know, and it had, it had held up at that point for uh, about 25 years. So, uh, you know, pretty much anything to get a ticket to go see this right when it came out was going to be worth it. Yeah. yeah. So the hype was, was big time for this, obviously. People have been thirsting for Star Wars for so long. Uh, so finally, the film gets ready, it's being shot, and we hear about the cast. And we'll start right off. We'll just go run through the cast here, and we can just talk about what your feelings are and all the people that were taking that role. And we'll start with uh, Qui-Gon Jim, who was played by Liam Neeson, who was a really well, pretty well-known actor at the time already. It was kind of interesting that he would go ahead and take part in a Star Wars film. As a matter of fact, it was told that he was so excited to play in a Star Wars film that he agreed to do it without even reading the script. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, he brought a lot to the to the uh, role that he played, and you know, certainly was fun to watch him in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rob. Yeah, he had also played in Rob Roy, which I was a fan of when that had come out. I think that came out in '95. Um, so. Definitely, uh, you know, feeding into a Star Wars role, a lightsaber, not that not that far <laughs> uh, different than the swords that he was using in Rob Roy. And then on top of that, you know, when you started hearing about some of the fellow cast members that he was going to be working with, it just uh, made it even more exciting. One of the interesting things about um, Liam Neeson was that when they had originally built the sets for Phantom Menace, they were essentially just building them so that they were just taller than most of the actors. Right. And because Liam Neeson was so tall, uh, it ended up costing them something on the something in the ballpark about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars extra <laughs> wow. um, to build to build the sets tall enough to be uh, above his head level. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he was a little taller than they planned on being out there. Yeah, they were going to uh, just build the set so tall and then uh, do uh, some special effects to kind of fill out the rest of the scene. Yeah, you're right. They had to uh, alter some of that. By the way, uh, it was reported that Denzel Washington, Tom Hanks, Morgan Freeman, and Kurt Russell were among the people that were possibly wow. thought of tabbed for that role. But, uh, of course, Liam Neeson got it. And the thing about Qui-Gon Jinn that is really interesting uh, to me is, one, he is very much different than what you've seen from a Jedi in the past. He's very much in touch with the living force. And you'll hear, hear that right at the beginning of the film. He mentions it to Obi-Wan, you know, you know, be aware of the living force. And that's kind of the way he is about it. I think everybody has a little bit different touch with the force. And he kind of has that feeling of like, can, he can tell when someone or some creature uh, will interact within him, with him and could help out or has something that will help uh, the what they're trying to accomplish through the force and that you know the, the interesting thing about this and I read the novelization is that's what they felt about Jar Jar Binks is that he didn't know about this creature but something about him told him that he was going to help uh, them out in one way shape or form that's why he needed to keep him around right I mean I, I didn't realize that when I've seen it before I know you've brought that up and that you know it kind of then once you brought that to my attention, I, I totally see that and, you know, how he did a few more of his mind tricks with mm-hmm. Jar Jar Binks and stuff and, and kind of understanding the whys. Mm-hmm. It was also, it also played a big part in how he interacted with the Jedi Council because, uh, you know, Obi-Wan was always concerned about how the things that Qui-Gon was doing, how that would affect him long-term with the Council. Mm-hmm. And Qui-Gon, like you said, he was focused more on the moment and doing what he felt was the right thing within the moment and wasn't going to concern himself with any downstream impacts of, of what that may do in terms of the Council being frustrated or upset with him. Yes, exactly. And that's why, you know, the Obi-Wan was upset. Like, he'd already be a master if he would right. just listen to what the council tells you to do, but he's like, nope, that's not the way he did things. Um, but we loved Qui-Gon Jinn very yes, much. Definitely. Uh, you just mentioned Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan was played by Ewan McGregor, who'd done a few films already, took on this role. And uh, there were some interesting things when he found out he was getting this role. He uh, trained with a vocal coach to try and get his voice a lot like Sir Alec Guinness. Uh, he also uh, studied many of uh, Sir Alec's films to try and get his mannerisms down. He really wanted to kind of play Obi-Wan. And I think he accomplished that and, and we see it a little bit in this film, but definitely in the later films, Michelle. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That he uh, he definitely nailed the mannerisms, and, and as you mentioned, as each of the trilogy, you know, the the first three episodes came out, you just saw it more and more as he aged and got closer to you know the the Obi Wan we saw in A New Hope. Mm-hmm. Rob, 
Yeah, uh, Ewan McGregor obviously was for me the shining star of the entire film. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. He to this day is still interested in doing uh, Obi Wan series, uh, be it film or TV or whatever the case may be. I know there's still some talk that this may be something that shows up on the Disney Plus service, but, uh, you know, to kind of tell the story of Obi-Wan from the time of The Phantom Menace uh, through to the beginning of uh, Star Wars A New Hope, and just kind of a funny little side note with Obi-Wan, Ewan McGregor was famous for making lightsaber sounds when he was doing his scenes, (laughs) which they ended up having to deal with in post-production, so he was definitely 100% in the role. Yeah, Uh, his portrayal of Obi-Wan really was what made me into a huge Obi-Wan fan. I mean, Sir Alec Guinness, of course, is the only one, won the only major Academy Award that uh, anyone has won in the Star Wars the universe. but I loved Ewan McGregor's portrayal of it, and I think I didn't think he got quite enough credit as he should have got for his uh, his portrayal of not only you know Obi Wan as who he, as he is, but also kind of taking the nuance out of it from what Sir Alec Guinness did with the role before. Right. Uh, moving on, Natalie Portman is tabbed, and she plays Queen Padme Amidala. She is just. 16 when she filmed this role. Of course, the queen was actually 14, so she was a little older than the actual portrayal of the character there. Um, She was actually very unfamiliar with Star Wars. She hadn't watched a Star Wars film when she got tabbed for this role, but she was like, oh, I better check this out. Uh, Lucas was impressed with her from her work on The Professional in 1994 and Beautiful Girls in 1996. Uh, I thought, especially in this film, and you could say what you want about her portrayal of the role in later films, but I thought Natalie Portman was really really strong in this movie, Michelle. Yeah, I definitely thought she, you know, was very, her character was a strong female character, which I think was a new nuance that, you know, they have in Star Wars films. So I thought that was a really good portrayal. And in fact, um, some, a friend of mine that's a physician one time, he has a, a young girl and he asked me, you know, which order he should have his daughter watch Star Wars. And I actually said, you know, Start with episode one because she's a young girl and let her see that there are strong women yeah, out there. And I thought point. that was a, you know, get that connection early on. That's a good point. That's a good point. Rob? Um, she was, she, I, well, let's put it this way. Um, she was exactly the type of character that she was in the professional. She was kind mm-hmm. of reserved, um, quiet, uh, but clearly that's what Lucas was looking for when he cast this. And I think it made a lot more sense in the Phantom Menace primarily because she was for the most part filling in that role of, of the queen, right? Queen Amidala. She was very reserved, very stately, um, kind of softly spoken. Um, How that transitions into the later movies is, you know, a a conversation we'll get into in some of the upcoming discussions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think for the purpose of what they were going for in this film, that, that she was doing exactly what George Lucas was looking for. Right. Completely agree. Completely agree. Uh, the role of Anakin Skywalker, played by Jake Lloyd, who, unlike Natalie Portman, uh, Anakin was nine years old, supposedly, in this film. Uh, and Jake Lloyd was actually eight years old when he made this movie, so he was actually younger than the wow. role he was playing. Uh, producer Rick McCallum said that, that uh, what he thought of Lloyd was that he was smart, mischievous, and loves anything mechanical. So that kind of was just like right. Anakin. So um, I thought Anakin portrayal, he's a kid, okay? So, you know, it's a kid actor. I'm not going to give him a, you know too hard a time, but, uh, you know, it was a little wooden at some points and... Uh, a little bit forced at some points. I don't know what you thought, Michelle. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I think all in all, I was less critical of his mm-hmm. portrayal than a lot of 
critics were or whatever. He was a kid. It's he was a kid, kid and I thought yeah. he was, you know, cute as could be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I and I I guess the other thing too is that it really, you know, did show the the beginnings and the good parts that, you know, he did have a heart. He did he he wasn't just some evil thing that landed <laughs> right <laughs> on a planet somewhere. Rob yeah, I, I'm in agreement with you, Tom, and I agree with what Michelle said as well, that, you know, he is a kid. It's kind of hard to be too too rough on him mm-hmm. in terms of the acting, and I would even go so far as to say that while some of the, the portions of his acting were wooden, um, that same thing could be held true for a lot of the group scenes that they had in the mm-hmm, movie. Right. Um, I'm thinking like the pa- the pod racing scenes, mm-hmm, yes. you know, when when they'd pan to the crowd and the crowd was cheering, it was just very forced. Mm-hmm. Um and I have a lot of, I guess, compassion for Jake Lloyd as an actor in that oh, yeah. film because yes. George Lucas was famous. Uh, you know, if you know anything about the creation of the original Star Wars trilogy, the extent to which he would direct most of the actors w- was to say, you know, faster and more intense. Right. right. The, dire- the direction that mm-hmm. he would typically give. So, you know, I think that a young actor like that probably needs someone who's going to kind of nurture him a little bit more mm-hmm. in that role. Right. And, you know, again, the the scenes that were selected to be in the final film, the director, you know, has the ultimate decision mm-hmm. and, right. and when he feels like he's got the take. So, uh, you know, I think you have to place some of some of the issue uh, that came out of his performance and some of the other actors' performance, you know, right right at the doorstep of George Lucas because he was ultimately the person who was saying, I, I feel like we have what we need. Right, yeah, exactly. E- exactly. This, this is what I think is going to be a theme as we go through the prequels mm-hmm. is that uh, some of the editing decisions, uh, not necessarily – you can decide on what you feel about the actors themselves, but the dialogue and the directing and the editing, I think, are going to come in play in some of the pieces that you really don't like so much about some of the prequels. I mean, right. I, st- I think they're all pretty good films when you really get down to it, but there are some things that they could do differently. And I think that's going to, it's starting here with Phantom Menace, and you're going to see that for the Attack of the Clones and, uh, re- um, excuse me, uh, Revenge of the Sith as well. Yeah, I do want to say one other thing real quick, just about some of the performances that were given. Again, this was George Lucas was pushing the technology that was available at Mm -hmm, the time, just like he did in the original trilogy. Um, And while the practical effects that they used in the original trilogy uh, were very successful in terms of how they turned out, some of the green screen work and blue screen work that they had done for the prequel trilogy really posed a challenge to a lot of these actors because they're having to act against things that aren't actually there. Right. Um, and, and this I was new at that, that. This was yeah. new at that point. So they may be, now actors are a little more used to that. It happens regularly in films. Uh, that was pretty new to that day. So they didn't have the experience with it. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and that's the point that I'm really trying to make is just that, you know, these are actors. Uh, they're supposed to be masters in their craft. But mm-hmm. They're also on the cutting edge of technology and having to deal with something that they've never dealt with before. And I suspect if you were to take a lot of them and put them in that situation now, given that the technology has been out there for 20 years, um, that it would be a little bit more natural performance. Right. Agreed. Yeah, Agreed. That makes sense. Uh, moving on through the cast, Ian McDermott reprised his role from Return of the Jedi, as uh, he was, of course, the Emperor in Return of the Jedi, but he was Senator Palpatine and Darth Sidious. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, again, I think that if we're going to talk about another person in this cast and throughout the prequels that really stole his scenes, every time he was on, I think it was Ian McDermott. Michelle, I think oh, you'd agree. absolutely. Make your skin crawl just <laughs> seeing him move or talk or anything like that. But yeah, he, he nailed it. He also nailed his... Um, his role as that, you know, and um, 
it, it made it just made me every once in a while though want to yell at the actress like how stupid can you be <laughs> we know how do you not know <laughs> how can you not see this guy for what he is <laughs> he's so swarmy what the heck I know. robbie and mcdermott what's your thoughts well, I love Ian McDermott. Obviously, the fact that they were able to get the same actor who had taken part in the original trilogy and have him reprise that role. And, uh, you know, he was just the perfect counterpoint to what you knew to be the Emperor as mm-hmm. Chief Palpatine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he just seemed so open and so friendly and so willing to to do whatever it took to do the right thing. Um, and, you know, you kind of have to look at him from the standpoint of any any Sith that can uh, pull the wool over the eyes of the Jedi mm-hmm, right. uh, when he, you know, in the later films is basically camped right on their doorstep. Uh, he clearly was a master of, um, you know, suppressing or disguising uh, who he really was. Right. right. Uh, he was so good. Uh, he eats up every single time. Every time he's on the screen, I uh, just love it so much. Mm-hmm. And uh, We'll talk, of course, more about him as we get through the rest of the prequels. Uh, Darth Maul was played by Ray Park. Interesting thing about Ray Park is that he wasn't really tapped to be in this role, but they saw him as kind of a, a stunt guy, and they're really impressed with his athleticism, the way he moved. And so they ended up uh, casting him in this role. However, they didn't like his voice. It was a little too high, so the whole three lines that Darth Maul uh, utters within this film were done by an actor by the name of uh, Peter, and I'm going to mess this up, Sarah Fenowitz. Yes. I think that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but um, I think we'd all agree that Darth Maul is a fantastic villain, even without dialogue. He doesn't need to do it because right. he's just so menacing and interesting michelle actually when um you know they had the cast do a lot of the interviews before the or as the movie was coming out and before the movie was coming out he to me was one of the more memorable ones where he Mm -hmm. you know i mean you could just tell one how much he enjoyed his craft like you said Mm -hmm. being you know able to choreograph these kind of scenes and things like that but yeah just even like i said as a person he really captured you know, my attention really made me want to see this even more so. Mm-hmm. Rob? Yeah, I think that it was important for them to get someone who could play the physical role of Darth Maul in this movie because one of the things that really made uh, the Phantom Menace stand out is it's really the first opportunity we get as a fan to see the Jedi in their prime, to see some of the abilities that they have. Uh, and then the counterpoint to that would be the Sith, you know, to see, and, and you could argue that he wasn't even really a fully trained Sith, uh, but mm-hmm. clearly he was a master uh, with that dual bladed lightsaber mm-hmm. and the fight scenes that he had with uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, uh, were really what took those lightsaber battles to the next level. Yeah, we'll right. we'll get to that in a moment here. But uh, yeah, it was spectacular, spectacular. One of the best parts of the film, for sure. Uh, moving on through the rest of the cast, uh, Frank Oz reprised his role as the voice of Yoda. And this was the last film that Yoda, until The Last Jedi anyway, that Yoda appeared as a puppet Yoda. Uh, he was only shot, It was he made his first CGI appearance in this film as well. It was a long shot when Yoda was talking to Obi-Wan on Naboo near the end of the film. They weren't sure the, the, the CGI was good enough that it would work. They really wanted Yoda to, to stand out in the scenes he was in, so they stuck with the puppet, but of course, uh, as the films progressed, the CGI improved, and through the rest of the prequels, it was CGI Yoda. Right, and I know that that was something when that George Lucas had even said in an interview that, you know, when he was looking to start with the prequels, 
um, he wanted to be able to show more of Yoda than what he was limited mm-hmm. to as a puppet. So mm-hmm. I know that was important for him to, you know, be able to have the CGI to do that. Right. Rob? Uh, obviously, we love Yoda. So, yeah. <laughs> And honestly, I mean, I, I'm glad that they chose to stick with the puppet again. Mm-hmm. I think that they did a lot of wonderful things with Star Wars using practical effects. And I'd always rather see them stick with... Uh, what is going to give the best performance as opposed to pushing the the technical envelope. Uh, And that would apply to a lot of things really throughout this, this uh, trilogy. But um, Yoda is, you know, the ultimate Jedi. He Mm -hmm. is, he is that person who you believe is completely in touch with the force. He is just wrapped himself in the wisdom and the knowledge that, that, um, that the force provides to him. And he is the guiding star for most of the Jedi. Yeah, right. no question about it. And uh, unfortunately, now if you get the, if you have the uh, the Blu-rays or any of the DVDs that come out more recently, uh, you don't get to see him as Puppet Yoda. They've completely replaced him as George tends to do with the CG uh, Yoda, which is a very good version of it. But it, we missed the the puppet version of it. So unless you have one of the older versions that first came out, you probably do not have, see him as the Puppet Yoda. So we need to get our VCR back up and running. <laughs> yes, that's what we need to do. We can see it. Get the VCR out of mothballs and yeah, put that out there. So, uh, Running quickly through the rest of the cast, Ahmad Best played Jar Jar Binks, Samuel Jackson making a Star Wars yeah. debut as Mace Windu, Pernilla August was Shmi Skywalker, Anthony Daniels, of course, reprising his role as C-3PO, although this was completely CG C-3PO. It wasn't, uh, he didn't have to get the suit on for this one. Uh, Kenny Baker as R2-D2, Kieran Knightley, an interesting person. If you didn't know that she was in this film, yes, she's in this film as Sabe, uh, Queen Amidala's handmaiden, and a lot of times the stand-in. She's the, the queen when Padme is not actually the queen. Right. That is Kira Knightley. So, uh, interesting rest of the cast. Uh, either of you have anything uh, on the rest of the cast, Michelle? I mean, No, I think they're all very wonderful. I guess I didn't realize... Um until recently, till you told me of who the stand-in was. I just knew that there was a stand-in, mm-hmm. um, but never connected the dots there. Mm-hmm. Rob? Yeah, I know that, uh, especially in regards to Kira Knightley, apparently, you know, the feeling was is that the two of them, when they were in their costumes, looked so close, closely alike that um, even Kira Knightley's parents had a hard time telling them <laughs> apart when they'd come to set. So uh, they were achieving their goal with that. Um, the only other thing I'd say really is Ahmad Best, you know, I know he gets mm-hmm. a bad rap, uh, given the general consensus and feeling about uh, Jar Jar Binks, but Again, this is this is the character that George Lucas was looking for, and you know he clearly nailed what what George was going for. the The real question was just whether that was the right move to make. Yes, right. Um, Agreed. And, uh, yeah, there's. I, I know that there's a theory out there that Jar Jar may actually be a, a Sith master, uh, just because, despite the fact that he's such a bumbling mess most of the time, uh, you know, he always seems to take out the battle droids. He always seems to, you know, his, his bumbling leads to the best possible outcome. Yes. I love that theory. It's, it cracks me up every single time I hear it. Uh, so good. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we get down to the legacy of this film, but uh, yeah, interesting stuff for sure. So let's move on to the synopsis of the film. And most of you already have seen it, so I'm not going to go too detailed. We're not going to go step by step through the film, but just basically uh, movie is set is 32 years before the original uh, film of Star Wars, of course, A New Hope. Uh, follows Jedi Knight Qui-Gon Jinn and his apprentice, Obi-Wan Kenobi, as they protect Queen Amidala in hopes of securing a peaceful end to a large-scale interplanetary trade dispute. Uh, join, they're later joined as they go to 
Tatooine. They're joined by Anakin Skywalker, a young slave with unusually strong natural powers for the Force. They simultaneously contend with the mysterious return of the Sith. The journey takes them from uh, Naboo, where all sorts of craziness happens. They get off from Naboo. They go to Tatooine. That's where they run into Anakin, of course. Qui-Gon quickly realizes there's something about this boy. He says it himself. Uh, and they, they, He works his magic. He gets him out there and, and gets him off the planet. And then they go to Coruscant, try and get, trying to uh, banter with the Senate to try and help Naboo and Queen Amidala uh, to questionable ends there. Uh, and they also, of course, try and get uh, Anakin as the Jedi that they uh, Qui-Gon believes he should be trained to be. Again, a little bit of trouble there. <laughs> and then eventually, they end up back in Naboo for a huge battle, as you would expect in Star Wars. Uh, so uh, really interesting stuff. So uh, your thoughts on the, the film as a whole, Michelle? Um, I think the film as a whole, you know, gave a lot of good introduction to who everybody was, you know, what was going to be considered part of the new legacy of, you know, this, this trilogy here. Um, I, I know that there, it's not a perfect, you know, film mm-hmm. and, but it, it did have a lot of great parts to it. And it definitely, you know, obviously something that everybody was waiting for and excited about. So I thought all in all, it was, you know, really pretty good. Yeah, Rob. Uh, obviously, it's it's not what I was hoping for when I first went to the theater. I don't have any issue what's, whatsoever with the story that was told. Uh, I think really one of the things that kind of weighs against it in people's mind and an interesting kind of tidbit about it is that there was some discussion about not starting the film with the traditional rebel fanfare mm-hmm. uh, that goes into Luke's theme. And the fact that they ended up choosing to do that and then the crawl against that. So in the original Star Wars movie, the crawl is all about, you know, the evil galactic empire and the rebellion fighting back against it. In this one, it's all about, you know, the evil trade federation and blockade on Naboo. Um, and it was a less militaristic kind of crawl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you have this, this music playing that evokes these memories in your head about Star Wars and, and all the action and that. And then this is really more about, um, you know, political corruption and, and kind of the undercutting of the existing re- Republic and the fall of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that kind of struck, a, you know, a discordant note in a lot of people's minds. But in terms of the story that they were telling, I think it's I think it's exactly what would happen um, for that republic to fall. All of the corruption in the Senate, um, the fact that really the goal of the film from Sidious's standpoint was to get the Trade Federation's trade license revoked, um, which is what leads to the discontent that begins what becomes the Clone Wars. Um, so it's kind of a it's it's a it's a manipulation by the Sith, um, and it's very effective in that regard. Right. Uh, to me, what what happened in this film, and I was discussing this with Michelle uh, just the other night as we were watching it, is that I think this is interesting because I do believe, yes, uh, Sidious Palpatine was very much in charge of what was going on throughout this portion of it. However, I think it took a left turn when he thought it was going to go right a little bit. Now he did succeed in his ultimate goal, which was getting to be the head of the government of the, basically the Republic, uh, to be the chancellor. However, I believe that he thought this was going to be what's going to start essentially the, uh, the, the clone war or right. the civil war or whatever you want to call it at that point. However, when Padme, 
turns out to be a little stronger than he expected and does something that he, he didn't expect, uh, it kind of settled things back down. So he had to find a different way. So he learned a few things, and that's where he really expanded it into the Clone War. I don't know right. if you have an opinion on that, Michelle. Yeah, I mean, once you said that, it was like, yeah, I totally see that. I totally get that for sure. Rob, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. This was never it did the way it turned out was never the way that uh, Sidious had foreseen this. Um, but the one thing that you can say about him is he is a master of adjusting to the situation right. as it comes at him. You can make an argument. This is why I was talking that Darth Maul. You would probably not even consider to be a full apprentice to Sidious in the sense that he knew that he wanted to take this down the road of, of a clone war where the public was going to cede all their freedom for security. And he had to know even at that point that Dooku was the person who was going to be leading up the separatist side. Mm-hmm. So I don't think his long-term goal was to ever have, you know, Maul be his full apprentice or his full, you know, Sith replacement. Um, it just seemed like he was more of a pawn. Um, right. And right. I, I don't think he expected him to be killed, but uh, you know, he is the master mm-hmm. of just kind of rolling with the punches and still making sure that whatever happens, it still feeds into his long-term plan. Right. Well, I think he knew Maul was expendable, just like he said. At some point, I just don't think he thought it was going to happen this early on. Again, it took some turns right when he expected everything to go left. Yeah. Uh, so uh, very different. Uh, the critical reception for this film, just as uh, some of it was from the public, was very split. Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times gave it three and a half stars out of four and called it an astonishing achievement in imaginative filmmaking and said Lucas tells a good story. <laughs> okay, uh, Drew Grant from Salon.com wrote, perhaps the absolute creative freedom director George Lucas enjoyed while dreaming up the flick's comic relief with no studio execs and not many in, an independently minded actor involved is the path to the dark side. So you can see <laughs> even the critics had were on other sides of this and I think the fans were kind of that way too in many regards. I'm going to talk about how I felt about it and I went and I told you I already waited in line to begin with to get out there. Then I waited in line to get in the theater for midnight and it wasn't the last time that I had to wait in line. After that we were able to buy tickets other ways but that wasn't the last time I waited in line to go see a film, even up to tell Michelle from the a Force Awakens, right. we waited in line to go see that. Uh, however, um, it was full Star Wars fans. We were excited for it, and at first viewing, especially when uh, we're seeing Jedi fight and act in a way that we've only kind of been hinted at in the original uh, trilogy. Uh, it, it was really exciting to me. I mean, yes, there were some dull points and some scenes were too long and everything, but I walked out of the theater actually thrilled the first time I saw it, Michelle. <laughs> I had the total opposite experience. <laughs> Not that I'm saying anything about how I felt about the film, but um, due to some issues that came up, I didn't get to see the film right away. And it was, you know, actually out for a couple weeks by the time I saw it. And I ended up going and it was me and one other person in the theater. <laughs> it was some guy in the you back. Out. And I was like, I just hope that's not like a weirdo. <laughs> that's all. But, you know, I, I saw I was, you know, I, you know, a lot of it that I really, really loved. I mean, I know this is going to sound girly, but all the costumes and costume designs and sets mm-hmm. I thought were really wonderful to look at. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, very stimulating in that regards, you know, um, you know, trying to get my head around what the whole 
thing was about. And, you know, so I came out of there kind of with a lot of questions, too, but totally loved the experience. But like I said, it's just the opposite of what you were because it was pretty much an empty theater. Rob, you've already talked a little bit about it, but your experience the first time seeing the film. Yeah, I mean, when the when the opening music played, I had goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Um, when the crawl came, I started to feel a little bit hollow, I guess is the best way mm. to put it. Uh, and I had varying reactions throughout the film. Um, you know, obviously the pod race is an incredible uh, sequence mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. that film. And for the most part, it's, it's incredibly exciting. The fight scenes between Qui- uh, Qui-Gon and Darth Maul, both in the desert on Tat- Tatooine, as well as the fight with him and Obi-Wan uh, at the end of the film were were very exciting um and there were other things throughout the movie that were kind of filling in details that i didn't previously know so those were exciting but then there was also the counterpoint of for me i think the thing that makes a star wars movie so successful is the the comedy and the timing of that and Mm -hmm, how it's mm -hmm. fit into the film and the movies I tend to not like as much. They kind of fall down in, in regards to that. Mm -hmm, And because the cast didn't seem to have the, um, boy, I I don't even know what to, what to call it. It's just, you know, it was so organic in the original star Wars movies Mm -hmm, between Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and and Harrison Ford chemistry. The interplay of those characters was so natural. And that was really missing in this uh, film for me. And, uh, you know, uh, consequently it, it turned into a situation where a lot of the comedy was poorly timed or came off a little bit wooden. So right. it fell down there for me, but there were still a lot of good things to take away from it. Um, it's not a movie that I go out of my way to watch uh, mm-hmm. very often. Right. And that's really true of almost all the prequel movies, except for uh, revenge of the Sith. But um it's you know it's still an enjoyable film and it does lay in the backstory that George Lucas wanted to tell, which is you know it's unfortunately for what a lot of the audiences were looking for. It is more political and it's more uh, you know about how a republic would fall, um, but it's you know there's a lot of validity to it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I think it's you know I, to me and the first time I saw it, I think I was with the energy in the room. I was excited to see it again. Uh, the, one of the first scenes coming out is uh, seeing uh, Qui Gon and Obi Wan mm-hmm. uh, go through the battle droids and just demolishing them with their lightsabers. And that's something I've been waiting for years to see uh, true trained Jedi's and what they could really do. Uh, so I got that right out of the gate. Um, you know, as the film progressed, I I, I thought. Yes, the uh, the pod race scene was a little too long, needed to be edited a little bit, but there was some excitement to it. Um, was the the comedy? I was okay with it to begin with, but the more in, in further watchings of it, it's just like okay, it's just it's beating you over the head too right. much. Again, more editing. It's usually one of my biggest pet peeves with many films is like if you just edit these things a little better, you can turn what is a C movie into a B plus or even maybe an A movie depending on it. Uh, and I like you, Rob, and I think Michelle is the same way. We don't go back and watch it very often, but I have to say when we broke it out this week, I, w- I enjoyed it more than I almost expected to because I hadn't right. seen it in a while and I took in the scenes that I enjoyed. And I'm one of the main scenes, and I, I you've both referenced it and I think I referenced it already, one of the scenes that I really enjoy that always blows me away is this one. We'll handle this. We'll take the long way.
don't know about you guys, but when he lit up the second half of that lightsaber, we had never seen a two-pronged, you know, the, 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 the two-sided lightsaber before. And then the fight scene afterwards, it is one of the best scenes in all of Star Wars. I think you agree, yeah, totally. Michelle. Rob? Yeah, so the, the really cool thing about the fight at the end of the film, and like you said, the the fact that Darth Maul had lit up both sides of his saber staff, was that earlier in the film, when he and Qui-Gon had their battle on Tatooine, he only had half of that lit up. So up until that point, if you hadn't seen any of the information that was released prior to the film, right. uh, it would have been a complete surprise that he actually had a dual-bladed lightsaber. Yeah, uh, I thought it was amazing. The whole fight yes. scene was amazing. A little bit questionable finish to it. But in, but another disappointing thing is that within you know a couple minutes of each other, we lost probably two of the most compelling characters True. that were in that film. It was, you know, like, well, we're not going to see them going forward. What? Right. You know, I don't know what you felt, Michelle. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Well, you know, not so much with Darth Maul. It's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I thought that was an amazing twist to have both of those very important characters be cut off before the movie was done, even. Mm-hmm. Rob? And yeah, sadly, they they kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit because I was one of the people who'd picked up the soundtrack before the movie came out. Uh-huh. And right there on the back of the soundtrack, you flip it over and the cue for that particular sequence was Qui-Gon's Noble End. So oh, you already you know, knew going in. Yeah. Ex- exactly. And <laughs> I'm sure there were plenty of people that took one look at that and were like, oh, my God. Yeah. Spoilers spoil before, like that before it's even out. Right. right. Spoilers before the Internet was even wow. <laughs> thing, you know? crazy stuff. Yeah. So the film went on to the box office. Actually, you know, despite some you know split between fans and between critics, uh, it was a giant hit. Uh, Phantom Menace grossed more than $924.3 million worldwide during its initial theatrical run. It made it the second highest grossing movie worldwide at the time, only behind Titanic. Uh, it became the highest grossing movie of 1999 and the highest grossing Star Wars film until the re- release of The Force Awakens in 2015. And it's the 10th highest grossing uh, movie in North America, unadjusted for inflation. Uh, it's estimated on the day it was released that 2.2 million full-time employees skipped work to attend the film, <laughs> resulting in $293 million in lost productivity. You know, we have March Madness going on right now. And we yeah. know about the lost productivity from a lot of people <laughs> gathering around, filling out their brackets and watching the games on Thursday and Friday. Well... Um, I'm telling you right now, uh, the Phantom Menace wiped that out yeah. <laughs> completely. So uh, it was a huge hit in the theater. No matter what people said about it, what people felt about it, how it uh, has gone on in the future, it was giant at the box office, Michelle. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like like we saw with Force Awakens. People were ready to get back onto this. And, you know, the hype was sufficient to obviously get people, you know, who weren't involved in the original to become involved and see what's this all about. So I can definitely see why it would be a hit. Yeah. Rob, your thoughts on the box office? Not really. I mean, it's it was not surprising, especially at that time, that people would go back and see mm-hmm. it multiple times, even if it wasn't their favorite Star Wars film, because there was really no other way to see it mm-hmm. uh, until it came out on VHS, or uh, I can't remember if Betamax was even still a thing at that point, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, that was the only way you were going to really be able to form your opinion was to go see it in the theater. That's true. Right. That's true. 
So, so that's basically the film. But there were some fun stuff that happened behind the scenes that maybe you don't know out there. I know Michelle has a few fun facts she wants to share with us about uh, the Phantom Menace. Well, just a, just a couple of them. Um, so one had to do in regards to the filming in Tunisia. And when the crew was originally going out there, um, they wanted to see what the original site looked like from, you know, where they filmed A New Hope. And it was really impossible to do much with that because the city had grown up and developed. But also, uh, what was interesting is that they did find that there was an article uh, that a PhD student had put together. Uh, he was an archaeology major, and, and he did his thesis on uh, where the original Star Wars was filmed. So uh, it was interesting to see that the producer, Rick McCullen, uh, did reach out to him and asked him to, you know, kind of tour them through the area. And one of the things that I thought was kind of a funny find for them is that the original cantina door was being used as a door for a chicken farm. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. It, it's like, okay. <laughs> People, if they only knew what they had, yeah. you know, it's golden there, yeah. you know. Right. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, and the other thing in, in terms of Tunisia is, you know, similar problems that they had with the first one, which was temperature. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was kind of, I don't know if I want to call it ironic or whatever, but the fact that during the goodbye scene between Anakin and his mom, the temperature was over 126 Ooh. degrees. And so I thought, you know... Um, it's like I'm, Orlando in August. Yeah. <laughs> plus, plus. <laughs> I thought, you know, I mean, doing a, a, a scene with a lot of emotion and, you know, pain, and they were literally feeling that. Right. You know, during that. Yeah. You know. Um, and that, you know, that's, I mean, the only one other funny thing that I saw was, um, and it's, it's going to be, I think, a little hard to describe it here, but when they were doing the crowd scenes for the pod races, um, you know, and obviously they, they were working with miniatures and things like that, but they, they had to do a shot of the large crowd. And so what they did was they used different color Q-tips. Hmm. In the shot. So the oh. Q-tips. <laughs> I see the picture here, yeah, Bob. It's pretty cool. It. The Q-tips were the people. <laughs> yeah, it actually looks like the crowd, yeah. Yeah, good. right, right. So, and, and, in some, and in some cases, they gave better performances. That's right. right. Actually, I believe that's true. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And um, the other little tidbit, and then I'll turn it over, is that um, I don't know if either of you know what the first scene shot was, but the first rolling cameras. Go for it. I don't know. Okay. It was in Palpatine's apartment, with oh. he and, and Darth Maul. And so that was the very first rolling of films in 1997 after all those years from the wow. prior. Wow. How yeah. exciting. Yeah. How exciting. Rob, you have any fun facts? Uh, yeah. Obviously, you know, not everyone listening to this is going to be a complete and utter Star Wars fan um, that has seen every movie and, and read all the books. But during the pod race, there is a scene where there is um, – a female that's kind mm -hmm. of perched on a, on a rock. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. And so that's Aura Singh, who is a bounty hunter um, who plays pretty prominently into some of the Clone Wars stories. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of cool to see. And the other items that I that I had in regards to the fun facts was they're really more music related. So I think, um, Tom, I'd ask you to pull a clip on yeah. Anakin's theme. Uh, so if we could play that real quick. Sure.
So the thing to note with Anakin's theme is that it really is intended to kind of reflect his journey um, from the child that they meet on Tatooine, which is why it starts out sounding kind of innocent and childlike. And then over the course of it, it builds up until it gets to kind of the highest of highs. Mm -hmm. And that is representative of his journey as a Jedi. Uh, And then once it hits that top peak, it goes through a series of descents. And by the time it hits the bottom of that, they give you a little bit of a hint at the Imperial March. Mm -hmm. Um, So that whole theme is intended to kind of reflect his hero's journey and his fall to the dark side. Um, And that mirrors something that they had done with Luke Skywalker in the original trilogy where Luke's theme or, you know, the main theme uh, is that same type of thing. It it mirrors the hero's journey where it kind of rises up and falls back and then peaks and then descends. So it's just kind of a an indication, you know, John Williams is an amazing uh, musician. Who? He is incredible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, he composes the music for these Star Wars films and it's not just a matter of, you know, providing music that fits with the scene. He is telling stories within that within exactly. that music and there's usually a deeper message to a lot of the things that he composes. Uh, the other place within this film that you see that is uh, you've got Emperor Palpatine's theme. At the end of the film, uh, when they have the Augie's Municipal Band playing during the parade at the end of the film, the interesting thing there is that that melody or that music at the end of the film is essentially the Emperor's theme uh, flipped. The Emperor's theme plays in a minor key. It's kind of that darker, um, more menacing. And if mm-hmm. you flip it and put it in a major key, that is exactly what they're playing at the end of the film. So it's it's a counterpoint to you have Palpatine sitting there. Uh, he's just taken over the Chancellorship, and he is the Phantom Menace. He's hiding right out in plain sight, and his theme is being played right out there in you know plain sight for anyone to see, and nobody's catching it. Yeah, here's a little piece of Augie's uh, great municipal band just to hear the difference. That entire section is the piece that is just the Emperor's theme flipped. Very cool. Wow, that's crazy. Very cool stuff. Interesting stuff. Uh, my fun facts. I just have. I'm, mine's not nearly as in depth as Rob's. Rob, I'm <laughs> yeah, impressed. Those good are great. Research. Love Woo. it. And uh, yeah, m- more and more reason to be impressed with John Williams for sure. Every time uh, he does a piece of music, it's right. it's amazing. Absolutely. Uh, I thought one fun fact is that we know that they decided to go for a lot of effects within this film. Well, there is one scene. There is only one scene in the entire film that doesn't have. Any special effects added in, and that is just the one little shot of the dioxys gas coming in when they're in the, uh, the, the, the basically the conference room when right. uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are in there, and they just take a shot of the vent, and the gas is going in. That is the only shot that wasn't special effects. Everything else wow. had at least a little bit of special effects, and I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And basically, it was most of it was almost like an animated film, and they had 45 animators who worked on this film. Uh, they created more than 60 digital characters, of course, including Jar Jar Binks, uh, a crew of 15 animators work solely on the on Jar Jar alone. So interesting stuff for there. Yeah. And just a quick note on uh, Natalie Portman's outfit as uh, Queen Padme Amidala. It took three or four months to create all those intricate, lavish outfits that she right. and uh, Kira Knightley Asabe wore as well. Uh, much of the fine detailing was hand stitched 
to couture levels. Wow. Uh, and by talented uh, wardrobe team is what yeah. they say. So, uh, you know, you can see that, yes, there was a lot of visual effects, but they also went into some detail work in some of the costumes and other interesting things, which right. I thought was fascinating. Yeah, and I remember hearing Lucas talk about that he wanted her to feel very special, very, you know, and and that's why, you know, making the costume to be so ornate and so beautiful uh, that it was going to, you know, make her feel that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, really good stuff. Uh, Rob, what do you think? Anything about the costumes or any of the other stuff that I brought up? I know that they were doing a, uh, an exhibit here at the Detroit Institute of the Arts mm. uh, last year where they were basically, um, talking and displaying a lot of the costumes specifically from the Phantom Menace, uh, talking about the, uh, the art of the costuming that they had mm-hmm. done. Um, so obviously it was incredibly ornate. Uh, I can't imagine what it would have felt like to wear most of that stuff. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I know Kate- that Michelle was, sorry, Michelle was talking earlier about the temperature in the desert. And the yeah. first thing I thought was I felt terrible for Ahmad Best because he was <laughs> oh, yeah. Gosh, yeah. Yeah. essentially yes. a latex, um, Jar Jar suit. So uh. hundred and, 20 plus degrees and then having that on would have right. been painful. But uh, I'm sure that, that uh, Padme, I mean, it had to be 40 pounds worth of clothing. Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I heard somewhere report somewhere that Kira Knightley actually, she was in such pain from having to wear some of those outfits at times that they, she'd be crying regularly after uh. the shots because it was just, uh, they were so heavy and there was so much to them right. that when she had to dress up as the queen in uh, Padme's stead that it just got to wear on her a little bit. And, yeah. You know, she's a young girl. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting stuff. So let's just quickly wrap this up with a little look at the legacy of this film. And I, I think the one thing I, I find interesting about this is if you watch this film as an adult, uh, I think you get one viewpoint on it, especially as someone who grew up watching the original trilogy and some of that. I think you have one feel on it. But if you watch this with a young child, um, that they have a totally different take on this, especially if they haven't seen the other Star Wars films in the past. Uh, George has always said that, look, you know, this is a film for, for young boys in particular. Right. Um, and I think that especially a child who's watched this film for the first time, that they see it in a totally different way than we see it necessarily. Yeah, I, I think that's probably self-evident. Um, the interesting thing about that, and, and I know that that was a comment that was made, uh, especially in light of a lot of the heat that The Phantom Menace took, but as you pointed out, I mean, that was really his goal from the beginning. And and you look at the original trilogy and there's a lot of things that are clearly not something that you would normally uh, expect young children to be uh, attached to or, or something that you want them seeing. You know, you've got Luke's aunt and uncle, you know, burning outside mm-hmm. the homestead right. and, you know, hands being lopped off. And there's a lot of things that seem like they're more for an older crowd, but I definitely think that with, um, especially with Anakin being younger in Phantom Menace, that it was supposed to be a movie that younger kids could connect to a little bit more. And I'm sure that they don't watch it with the critical eye that most adults are going to watch it with. And as we talked about earlier, this is their first exposure to Star Wars. So they don't have a lot of the preconceptions that we would have coming from, you know, a generation that watched the original trilogy. Right. And their expectations for some of the, um, special effects and everything would have been heightened to what an adult who saw the original trilogy might have been looking at. I also thought like a lot of messages as an adult that we could probably see that may not necessarily be as evident to a kid, but hopefully kind of grow up with that thought, you know, is, you know, the fact that Anakin was a slave, but didn't see himself as that he didn't limit himself 
to that, you know, and then also in the scene where we see the queen having to, you know, kneel down to, you know, try to unite the the two entities, the Gungans and right yeah, for the yeah. for the common good there. So I thought those were some really interesting messages that came through. Like you're saying that as an adult, we would see those, maybe not see that in, as a child. Yeah, um, you know, I, I just think it's really interesting, and I do believe that. And I, I agree with with both of you in all those regards. And I think that really there are there's a whole generation of kids out there, and, and you know, our son Nick, uh, for one, I, that was his first Star Wars film, and he loved. It. And I think there's a lot of people that were indoctrinated into Star Wars through the Phantom Menace. And right. yes, they've heard a lot of the talk about how it's not that great. And maybe even they look back on it like, okay, yeah, maybe it wasn't so great. But it still was that film that brought them into the universe, right. uh, into the Star Wars universe. And, uh, you know, I think that's fantastic, personally. Right. And they probably seeing the original ones because they were a lot more low tech and everything might not find those as interesting and kind of question us as to why we mm-hmm. thought those were wonderful. Mm-hmm. I know one of the things I don't think is fantastic, and that's another part of the legacy of this film, is that uh, this film basically, and this was the start of what we've seen a little bit more recently, as a matter of fact. It, it drove Jake Lloyd out of acting, essentially. He just, he couldn't, t- he right. got so much ridicule for his portrayal of Anakin Skywalker that it drove him away from acting. He's only recently come back and kind of, you know, done stuff with Star Wars recently. And it drove Ahmad Best to basically uh, contemplate suicide at some point because he was getting so much ridicule for playing Jar Jar Binks. And that's a side of Star Wars that I just can't stand. Star Wars fandom, I should say, that I can't stand. And I'm so glad that the people are now reaching out to them and uh, embracing them and welcoming them back into the fold. Uh, Michelle, I know what you think about that. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I couldn't imagine how horrible it would have been if, you know, the social media that we have today would have been you know, in, involved or active at that time. I think that would have done, you know, crushed people even more. I, I think there, w- there would have been a lot more negativity shared with people. Mm-hmm. Rob, I know you already alluded to this earlier on in this segment. Uh, what do you thought? What do you think? Yeah, about it? It, it just to re, uh, restating what I said earlier, which is that, you know, they were all giving a performance that the director was asking. Mm-hmm. You know, these characters were not created by them. The story that they're telling was not created by them. They were just um, basically the vessel for delivering that to the fans. And, you know, I talking about it from a pod, podcasting perspective, I'd hate to see what a podcast would would look like if we took the worst of our takes and put them all together. Right. You know, people would have a completely different <laughs> idea about that. Um, no one no one's intent is to go out there and make a bad movie or to give a bad performance. And, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of that responsibility that falls on the director, that falls on the writers and, you know, Neither of these characters should have been persecuted in their personal lives for anything that they did in the film. Agreed. I believe that's true, and we've said this many times about any of the actors in any film. Be critical of the film. Be critical of the role if you even want. But leave the actors alone. They're doing something that most people out there would die to do. They would go and do these roles without being paid for it uh, if they were offered uh, to them. Uh, So, you know, leave them alone. I just think that these people... They've chosen to do something we'd always dream of. Again, critical of a film. I have no problem with being critical of a film. Not everybody has to like everything, but right. uh, the actors, they're just doing a job. 
And it's possible to have a conversation about what you liked and didn't like without it getting personal. Exactly. Right. I agree with that, too. Again, not everybody has to like everything. You know, it could be something as like we talked. We were at the Food and Wine Festival yesterday at California Adventure, and we're going to talk about that a little bit here. But And we both tried the same dish, and she didn't like it as much, and I liked it a little more. Right, and that's right. fine. But yes. and movies are the same way. So you're moving out, right? <laughs> that's it. It's over. This is the last podcast. That's right. That was good. Anyway, uh, so uh, any closing thoughts before we uh, wrap up our first part of this Remembering Star Wars series, Michelle? I do. I think there's another song written out there that is the best synopsis of this movie. Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> Weird Al. <laughs> I think you need to play that. It's like an awesome song. <laughs> It is added. Thank you. <laughs> but no, that does that get, you know, that sums up the whole story. It captures every essence of the, all the scenes. And- I think it's funny because he also was, that's how excited Weird Al was for this film as well, that he that's wrote true. this whole right, song for right, it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rob, your, your final closing thoughts on uh, episode one, The Phantom Menace. Yeah, it's, it's just like if you were to take a book, right? Um, the book is going to have high points. It's going to have climaxes, but not every chapter of that book is going to be the most amazing story. And uh, that's really what you're dealing with with The Phantom Menace. This is this is the beginning of a tale that leads up to the fall of Anakin Skywalker and the events of uh, Star Wars, uh, you know, the Star Wars original trilogy, which, you know, we, a lot of people would consider to be a, a big part of the climax of that. Mm-hmm. And it's unfair, I guess, to to judge it as a bad film just based on, uh, you know, potentially some, some wooden uh, acting or some issues that they had with dealing with the new technology that they were using. I think um, the story itself is still valid. And uh, as with every Star Wars film, there's a lot you can take from that, even right. if you don't love every last bit of it. Yeah. Uh, the, my final takeaway from uh, The Phantom Menace is like, look, is it one of my favorite Star Wars films? No, it's probably near the bottom of my list, but I am rewatching it again the other day. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, the way I look at it, it's it's like pizza. Even when a Star Wars film is kind of bad, it's still pretty good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> good point. So, good point. I, I still enjoy it. And it's part of the lexicon. And I, there were some key parts that came out of it. I, you know, I think it could have been edited better. Right. But bottom line, it's it's not as bad as people want to make it out to be. So. Yeah, it's. I mean, you're comparing something to the original trilogy, which was really lightning in a bottle. I mean, he had such uh, an amazing cohesion between the mm-hmm. primary actors in that movie, and you just can't expect to have that in every film that you put right. together. Right. And, and I mean, you look even back at the original trilogy now, it's so ahead of its time. It still stands up today. Yes, there are some, a little hokiness with some of the effects from then right. to now, but it still, for the most part, stands up effect wise and definitely story wise to even today. And it's right. tough to recapture that. It's trying to, hard to get that lightning in a bottle again. Right. Well, that we see that, what we talked about last week with, with pre, I mean, excuse me, with the sequels. sequels yes. It's hard to, you know, have the same heart when you're already knowledgeable of something that came out first and who all those people were and everything. And so, I mean, it's a challenge anybody would have. Yeah, and your audience is, you know, it's a larger Disney audience. It's about more than just Star Wars. And mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. it's important for people to keep in mind that uh, a lot of the groundwork that was laid with the technology that they used to make this film mm-hmm. is what then, you know, industrial light and magic um, then 
went on to develop the technologies that turn into a lot of the Pixar films that right. you know and love. Mm -hmm. um, and they were leveraging that for a lot of other films in Hollywood. So, you know, there there is a lot of good that came out of these films. No question Absolutely. about it. And again, I, 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 I rewatching it, I enjoyed it more than I even expected to because I've been kind of poo-pooing right. it for a while. <laughs> uh, but it was so good to see it again and I enjoyed parts of it. There's the parts, again, editing, 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 right. I always say it. But uh, <laughs> I, I still enjoy and I think it's it, it's still a d fairly decent film. Maybe not my favorite, not even close, but still a fairly decent film. So that's our look back. Star Wars Remembered at Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. Uh, that's what we felt about the film. We'd love to hear what you feel, felt about the film as well. You can always uh, contact us in the many ways we discussed at the beginning of the show, and we will bring it up again at the end of the show. Speaking of uh, bringing up how to contact and how to listen to somebody, Rob, please let everyone know how they can find the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. Yeah, the podcast itself is on uh, most of the major podcast platforms. So you can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, and TuneIn, and I believe Pocket Casts. I actually had one of our listeners submit the feed to that. Nice. So um, if you're listening on a different platform and you want that to be added, please feel free to reach out. We'll get that taken care of. Uh, you can also reach us via email at jtapodcast at gmail.com and on Facebook, Twitter, uh Pinterest and uh, sorry, not Spotify, uh, Instagram at JTA Podcast. Very nice, yeah, and uh, definitely give it a check, check it out, and subscribe yes. to it. It's a great podcast. We know because we take part in it from time to time. <laughs> so uh, it really is enjoyable, and if you like Star Wars at all, it's it's a good podcast to check out for sure. Right. Rob, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate your input on today's show. You really uh, brought some good stuff to it. And we look forward to uh, doing this more as we get on. The next one we'll do next month in April. At some point, we'll be doing episode two, Attack of the Clones. Uh, looking forward to that one, doing that with you as well, Rob. Very good. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking some Star Wars Galaxy's Edge with you both later. Ooh, All that's right. exciting. That's nice. And thank you again. You, you you did a lot of great research and you you really added a lot to the content here. And we really appreciate it. As he always does. Oh, you guys are always fun to hang out with. So yeah, I much thanks. appreciate you having me on. All right. So thank you once again to Rob LeBerry. Again, uh, check out the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I've been on it a couple of times and Michelle is joining it. We're all going to be on it tonight, uh, sometime this week, whenever he releases it. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to that. And so. Rob, Rob always has great input for us. Oh my us, gosh, so. yes. So uh, let's wrap it up and move on to a completely different direction here. We're going to go to some park information. And yesterday we were lucky enough to finally get out. It's only been a few weeks open, but uh, we finally got out to go check out the two 2019 Disney California Food and Wine Festival out at Disney California Adventure Park at the Disneyland Resort. And we had a great time. We did. We did. It exciting. And it was fun doing the research beforehand to see, you know, um, what what the different kiosks they had and what mm -hmm. the foods they had and, you know, to learn about the sip and savor, mm -hmm. you know, and, and how that works. And so, and if you're not familiar with that, it's... Um, what in the past? I think they only had it for uh, annual pass holders. Uh, up but, until recently, that's the way it was. Yeah, I think, but, it, now, but now it's open for everybody. Everybody, and although so, annual pass holders still get a discount on it. Exactly. As well. So um, with that, you get a lanyard that has these eight coupons that you can redeem for um, food and non-alcoholic drinks uh, throughout the the food and wine. Not know, the marketplace. Marketplace, right. Yeah. So um, it was fun researching that and getting that kind of information before we went, kind of got the, the trip started ahead of time. 
Yeah, so we checked it out. Of course, there's only two of us. We can only eat so much, so we, so we couldn't sample everything because there are so many different small plates and drinks and everything to try. But we did try out a few things, and we wanted to tell you a little bit about the stuff we tried. And there were some hits and some misses and some kind of eh, you know, in between. So just to kind of give you an idea of what we tried and what we liked, um, we liked the pe- Petite Impossible Burger. With uh, yes. That was the uh, – basically, it's, it's a, a veggie-based burger – uh, and it came with guacamole on it, and it was really. I, I, it was hard to tell it wasn't meat. It was really tasty. Exactly. For me. It was. You know. Well, first of all, the, I thought the portion size was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nice little are, slider right, size. Yeah. yeah. These are all, but it really filled the bun. Even you know, mm-hmm. where sometimes the sliders are they're thin and they you know, kind of short, small into it. So this was a, a fairly large sized burger, and like you said, the 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 toppings were really delicious. And I agree with you. They. Um, they, it, it nailed the texture and the flavorings that I thought that they were trying to go for with a, you know, a, a beef kind of a mm-hmm. substitute for a plant-based. Right. It was really, really good, and I really enjoyed it very much. Another thing we really liked that we tried were the beer-braised pork tacos that we got over at uh, Paradise Garden Grill. Uh, Really good, tasty stuff, uh, really flavorful. One thing you want to know about that is if you go there and try and use a tab for that one, you only get one taco, whereas you could purchase it and you get three tacos. So. Weigh that out in your equation if you're trying to figure out what's worth a tab from your sip and saver pass or not. Right, right. Because for your sip and saver, you know, usually if you're going, I think I think we figured out to like, well, depending if you're an annual pass holder or not, uh, you know, six to seven dollars per um, dish. Then you're doing okay. You're actually saving some money mm-hmm. versus buying it. But you're right when when you're going to um, Paradise Grill, that one. I think in hindsight, probably would have been good to purchase, purchase it and then get. Of course, we ate so much food. We That's had, true. We, had we three tacos. Been able. That's we, were true. Like, oh, <laughs> we ate so much. We were so full. That's, we were going. That's why we didn't sample as much as we actually planned on to begin with. But uh, some other thing, one thing we disagreed on a little bit is the shrimp boil tacos that we had. Right. It was from the, the off the cob uh, marketplace stand. Um, Michelle thought it was a little too salty. She has a lower salt tolerance than I do. <laughs> I kind of like the saltiness of it. It kind of reminded me of, it's a shrimp boil. Uh, right. It tasted like a shrimp boil to me. Uh, it was just a little too salty for her. So it, depending on how, how your tastes uh, tend to go, maybe you can think about uh, that one. But Right. Well, and the other thing too with that, which we've seen at some of these other festivals, is that might have just been that batch. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been right. some things... Uh, like on the other side of the coin, we, we've had some things that the first time we got it was wonderful. And then we've ordered it again on a different day and and may have had some issues like whether it was saltiness or, or spiciness or some other issues related to it. So it could have just been that batch. I thought the flavor was delicious. I just couldn't get past just how much too salty, salty for you. Yeah. you know, and that was one that we each got the same dish. So mm-hmm. it was, there was a lot. There was a lot. <laughs> yes. Which I ended up, since she didn't like it as much, I ended up eating all of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that one too, with the white, right wine, you yeah. know, so, you know, maybe something sweeter. Like a than, Riesling would yeah. have been really good with that. Right. Know? Which is yeah. what yeah. we didn't have. So. Yeah. Um, another thing that we were kind of middle of the road on was the artichoke toast with olive tapenade. Mm-hmm. Um, from the artichoke stand. I can't recall the name of it right off the bat, but uh, that was, uh, it was pretty good. I mean, it had a good artichoke flavor and the top and knob was pretty good, but I don't, I didn't just wow me. The, the toast was a little soggy to me, but it, it was good. It just didn't wow me. What did you think about it, Michelle? Same thing. It was good. Um, it wasn't great. And um, 
you know, I probably wouldn't necessarily need to get it again. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, the kiosk there was, I love artichokes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, like you said, if if we had had more um, stomach room to try some other dishes, I think maybe the fried artichokes. I know a lot of people have talked about those yeah. were being really very good. We planned but, on trying more, but we got yes, so full so quickly that exactly. we just couldn't eat many much more. Yeah. Um, another thing that was kind of just missed was the fish and chips. Again, we mm-hmm. got that from over at uh, – uh, at the uh, Paradise Garden Grill. Again, it's another one where you want to take a look at before you use a tab because you only get one piece of fish and the, uh, uh, and the uh, French fries. Uh, if you use the tab where you get three pieces, I believe, if you, it's either two or three pieces right. if, you, if you pay for it. But um, it was close. The, the, the fish was, it's a beer braised cod, and, or excuse me, not beer braised, uh, beer battered cod. Right. And it was, crispy and that was good about it but it just lacked a little bit of seasoning uh, the remoulade was okay but it didn't really add enough to it and it was a little greasy but the, the fries were good it almost was there i think if you actually just were to get a little salt and add a little salt to right. it probably pretty good yeah you know, yes you know. so that, that was the opposite of the other right the shrimp boil <laughs> the you just need to boil. mix it mix yes. the fish and chips with the shrimp boil and put them together and you're good to go well balanced yes <laughs> So, and then the other thing that we were really disappointed in, actually, and again, it may have been just when we got it, and you may have a different experience with it, was the fruchi. We right. tried the fruchi back uh, last year when we were at the uh, Flower and Garden Festival, right. I think it was, at, 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 Epcot. at Epcot, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was really delicious, you know, and so we were kind of expecting something along the same lines. And the flavor was okay. You know, it's strawberry-based with a coconut ri- uh, sushi rice right. and stuff, but it just there was no really possessed. There was no wow to it. And it right. just, it was a look, looked a little disappointing. And again, we got this kind of early on in the morning. So maybe this was kind of a leftover one. Maybe later on in the day, they were a little better, Right. but we just weren't impressed. That was probably the one thing that we both agree that we just weren't impressed with at all. Yeah. That one had a textural issue that mm-hmm. just was, was not as satisfying as the one we've had in the past. So, yeah. So unfortunately, and that was our, you know, I'm, I'm not going to completely tell you not to do it, but it just was, not quite right for us. Um, so just, you know, again, uh, take everything that we say with a grain of salt and things are different throughout the day. Different staffs are made right. at different points. Uh, you can kind of find out uh, what you like and what you don't like out there. There's plenty of great food to try. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to try much more. We, we got a couple of cheese plates that actually we're to take home with us that we're going <laughs> to enjoy once we get off the podcast today because, you know, we're always hungry when we're on these podcasts. Right. So yeah. uh, we're looking forward to trying those later as well. One interesting thing, uh, along with, of course, we already talked about the Sip and Savor Pass. Another great thing that they're doing this year is that uh, if there are a lot of long lines at some of these stands uh, and you want something from one of those stands, you don't have to necessarily wait in that line to order. You can go to a, one of the other marketplace stands that maybe has a shorter line and you can order from any, any of, of the marketplaces yes. at that one stand. It could be that one. It could be any of the other ones. Uh, I thought that was a great way to cut time if you wanted to try a lot of different dishes. Absolutely. And that was something that uh, I agree with you totally. That's a great, great thing that they changed this year. Because I remember last year when we were we were at it, um, that was the, the issue is we would be in line you know, holding something that we had just gotten from another kiosk, you know, wanting to go sit down and enjoy a couple plates together. And by the time, you know, we actually got the other food, you know, going through a second line to pay and everything, things were, you know, cold, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So 
I agree with you. That was fabulous that they did that. That was a wonderful addition. Right. I agree so much. I, that made things so much easier. And you don't, just because you order it at that time, it doesn't mean you have to go rush over to the other stand and pick it up. You just bring right. your, uh, you just keep your receipt with you because it'll have all the items listed and they'll cross them off as you get them at the stand, each one individual item. Right. So you can go to any one of them, you know, you can get, you can order everything you want to eat from that day if you want early on and just go back to the stands later with your receipt and they'll just cross it off whenever you get it from each individual stand. Right. So that was a great feature. I'm yeah. so glad that they did that. Yeah. So uh, lots of great drinks and wines and uh, everything else out there too. Highly recommended. Crowds were pretty big when we were out there today. You right. can tell uh, it's a very popular thing for uh, out of everybody out here in California. And But people were loving it. We had really great weather yesterday. Really enjoyed it. And we may try and get out there again to try and sample a few more things. If we do, we'll, we'll let you know in a future episode. Right. And if there are some things there that you've experienced and you really liked about the, that, let's hear about it. And we'd love to share that on a future podcast. One other thing we got to experience that didn't have anything to do with the Food and Wine Festival is that we got to go check out where Captain Marvel, right. where who knew uh, meet and greet area is, uh, and that is if you know uh, Disney California Adventure Park at all, it's kind of over by where uh, Mike and Sully's ride is attraction right. is. Uh, it's over in that area over there. Which, by the way, that. They need to move that attraction. It's completely out of place right, <laughs> right now. You know, they should find a way to move it over by Pixar Pier or something. But I, I digress. Um, but it's really set up really, really well. It's really a cool meet yes. and greet area. It's just right out in front of what is it looks like uh, a, a stage uh, stage studio, and they have a the front end of a jet pointed out of it, and they have the shield logo above it, and it's pumping out '90s rock music, <laughs> yes. and she's out there, and we we didn't get our picture or meet or meet her or to get our picture taken with her, uh, but she was very interactive with right. all the people we saw out there, and it really looked like a, a wonderful meet and greet for sure. Right, right. They had her, and they had also. Uh... They had Captain America. Yeah, not too just far a little bit far uh, right. down the road. So, yeah. yeah. And and the other thing going on at that time in, in kind of that area, because if you are familiar with it, there mm-hmm. is a stage area there as well. And they, they have um, cooking demonstrations more yeah, we had Chef kid Goofy out or there, family yeah. oriented right. throughout the day. So that that was really cool. That was the too. one thing. That's the other thing I forgot to mention with the Food and Wine Festival. We got to check out the Jam and Chefs That's with Chip true. and Dale. That was yes. a lot of fun. Uh, if you know where, uh, where the little, uh, excuse me, I always want to say, the little green man though you know it's the green army men uh kind of do their show out in the middle of uh, disney california adventure park that's where the jam and chefs come out and they're a bunch of percussionists but they're playing the the instruments are all the different plates and pans and pots and everything that would be in a kitchen Uh, and they're just they're going to town on it it really is great good dancing uh good percussion a lot of fun interactive with the crowd we really had a great time with it absolutely and there's a similar one that they do at Epcot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one here at Disneyland Resort was, like you're saying, more interactive. They got some kids involved and let them do some things. And uh, I thought that was it was a cute touch to do that yes. as well. So as you can see, yes, there's plenty of food and drink for the adults out there, but there is right. fun for the kids as well Absolutely. with the jamming chefs and the likes of uh, Chef Goofy and his uh, fun stuff. They had a lot of kids involved in yeah, that when they, they were really out there. Did. Really, they yes. had a ton of some on stage, some below the stage, but they're all out there. I think they were doing some sort of oatmeal cookie Cookies, thing when yeah, we were there. Right. Really, really cool stuff. So, a lot of fun. Uh, go check it out. I highly 
recommend uh, the California Food and Wine Festival out at the Disney California Adventure Park at the Disneyland Resort. That is a lot to say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. We're Of course, this episode is long. I expected it to go a little long since we broke down the Phantom Menace so much, but th- that's okay. Uh, we want to get to our Disney stories of the week. And let's just start with one of the big things that came this week, and that was the debut of the full-length Toy Story 4 trailer that uh, came out this week. Right. And uh, really cool, interesting stuff. Uh, just to kind of go through it, and if again, if you are trying to avoid complete spoilers, avoiding any trailers or whatever. You can just skip ahead a couple minutes here and you won't give you anything away. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about this trailer. Uh, what we find out about this trailer is a little bit more along the storyline of what we're looking at in Toy Story 4. Apparently what's happened is Bonnie, who of course, if, you know, if you've watched the rest of the Toy Story franchise, you now know that she's replaced Andy as kind of the owner of these toys. Uh, she has built... A brand new toy out of a spork, and that is Forky. Yes. Now, Forky's having real difficulty with this because, one, that's not what he was intended to do. We even gave him, like, I'm not supposed to do chili or soup or that's it. And I'm thrown away. So he's, he's like, he's a craft project. I'm not a toy. So he's having this real issue with it. Uh, but he's become Bonnie's favorite new toy. I mean, like, you know, Woody was for Andy or Buzz was for Andy at one point, you know. Um, But he's just having this crisis with it, so he runs away. And all Woody wants to do is help you know, Bonnie makes sure that she has her favorite toy. So he's going off on the road in search to try and save this toy to find Forky. And uh, looks like interesting things ensue from that. Yeah, yeah. Some other interesting characters, some we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I uh, I thought it was a pretty uh, cutting edge kind of uh, cast there. Yeah. Uh, the animation looks spectacular. Right. We've never seen Woody and Buzz and the gang look better. It right. really, really looks good. Uh, my only problem with this trailer that, and I, I actually I enjoyed it. The more I watched it, I watched it a couple more times. First time I watched it, I was like, eh. a couple watched it a couple more times. I enjoyed it a little more. But the one thing I have, and that's the storyline, seems to be it's kind of derivative of the storylines. Right. Like it's like we took the first three and we're mashing it together right. into one story. <laughs> only we're going to have a different character that we need to go out and save, right. or one different character is suddenly Bonnie's favorite toy or sure. whatever, you know. But I, I have to say, I was after, after watching it a couple more times, I was excited for it, and I'm looking forward to this film. And I know that, that you know they they haven't done wrong with the Toy Story film so far. I've got to expect that this one's right. going to do as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it just. Um, I'm trying to figure out the word I want to use to describe it. I don't want to say intense, although there are some parts oh, that yeah. I thought were, whoa, that's... Well, I mean, let, let's, yeah. let's talk about the, the what looks like it could be the new villain, which is Gabby Gabby, which right. was this creepy-looking yes. uh, girl doll. Uh, <laughs> she had her little uh, dummy, uh, you know, uh, little... Um, um, shoot. Um Ventriloquist dummy. She had her right. little ventriloquist dummy yes. uh, partners there. It was looking a little creepy, you know. 
so are they the villain? You know, sometimes Toy Story has a twist. That's are true. they the villain? We don't know. Uh, but it was kind of interesting. And then we saw Bo Peep. We've already seen her, you know, in a little bit in some of the artwork for this movie and uh, a little bit in some of the teaser trailer stuff. And that, that uh, she has a little bit different look. She's been yeah. through a few things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now we saw Bo Peep, uh, who has been living out on her own for a while. It looks like maybe she's been working at a, or living at a fair or something along those yeah, lines. So something. interesting stuff. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited for them when this film comes out and when the next few. Oh yeah, uh, definitely, months. definitely. Like I said, it has a, has a, some unique looks to it. Right. So that's that's good stuff. So that was the Toy Story Four trailer. I know a lot of people were excited about it out there. What did you mm-hmm. feel about the Toy Story Four trailer? Are you excited for this film? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, let's quickly get to another story. Let's get to some park news, and that is uh, we're going to go over to. Epcot over on the East Coast in Orlando at the Walt Disney World Resort. And news came out this week that I know excites Michelle. And that is there's a new restaurant (laughs) coming to the France Pavilion. And it's going to really tempt your taste buds for sure. It's one of Michelle's favorite things to eat. So she's going to be excited about this. So this is straight from the Disney Parks blog. Scheduled to be built in an all-new location near the previously announced Remy's Ratatouille Adventure Attraction, the new Crepery will feature the cuisine of celebrity chef Jerome Bocuse. I hope I got that right. Jerome Bocuse. Uh, the mastermind behind p- the pavilion's Chef de France, uh, Brasserie, and the celebration of gourmet cuisine, Monsieur Paul. Uh, with a menu inspired by the Brittany region of France, the new location will offer table service dining as well as quick service stop for guests craving savory crepes called galettes and sweet crepes as well. So that's exciting yeah, that news. that is exciting. I love that. We yes. love crepes. And, right. Uh, that's going to be a nice addition, I think, Absolutely. to Epcot and I the think, France Pavilion for yeah, sure. Yeah, give some more variety. And it, it, I mean, it, it makes sense. They're kicking off a new ride. I mean, to have, you know, they're building up mm-hmm. a little bit more throughout Epcot, you know, and so that's, that's exciting. Yeah, that's going to be great stuff. Uh, looking forward. Of course, they already have like sort of a, an area where there's like a little, right, little stand that they kiosk. do crepes. Right. This sounds like it's going to be a much more expanded menu. If they're going to actually have a sit-down restaurant, it's going to be a much right. more expanded menu and so we might have a lot more uh, variety of what kind of crepes you can have. So, sure. sounds exciting. I'm looking yes. forward to trying that out for sure. Uh, other news out of Epcot that came out this week. Uh, there's a new film presentation that's coming to the Land Pavilion I'm in Epcot. Yeah, yes. this again from the Disney Parks blog. Awesome Planet, an on-screen exploration of the realm we call home, showcases the spectacular beauty, diversity, and dynamic story of our Earth with all the grandeur guests have come to expect. With spectacular nature photography, immersive in-theater effects, and space sequences created by none other than industrial light and magic, which, of course, we just talked about a little bit ago, provide the cinematic foundation for the Star Wars franchise. Awesome Planet will stir Epcot guests and deliver an environmental message that will resonate far beyond its final scenes. I love that. A new movie Done when we've you know we've seen the Disney nature stuff and all the great stuff they've done about that right. in the films. We got penguins coming out here and very shortly in just a couple months yes. here that I'm looking forward to seeing as well. Uh, they do such a great job with these. I'm looking forward to them kind of splicing a lot of this stuff together to into a storyline and presenting it for us at the land. Right. I mean, first of all, it sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> awesome. 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 Uh, maybe you should cut that. Yeah, it's in. Uh. Sorry. <laughs> awesome planet. It's but in. but yeah, and again, that's another area that. They could really use the change. I know that they used to have um, more of a Lion King theme mm-hmm. 
similar, you know, love the planet kind of um, movie, which was great. Loved it. But yeah, now it's time to get something new and fresh in there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to when that uh, debuts and uh, that looks like it's going to be a really great film. Again, you, you look at the Disney nature films, they're all wonderful. Yeah, they do well there. I'm excited to see what they come up with this. So that's cool. You just mentioned The Lion King. That's an mm-hmm. interesting uh, segue into our next thing. And that is uh, something that people will be very excited uh, to hear. And that is Rafiki's Planet Watch is getting set to reopen at Animal Kingdom Park at the nice. Walt Disney World Resort. I know people were a little concerned yes. when it closed down. Is it coming back? Is it gone for good? Well, no. It's going to be at least coming back for this summer. This straight from the Disney Parks blog again. Uh, Rafiki's Planet Watch, the affection section, and the Wildlife Express will fully reopen this summer. The area will include a new, uh, a few new enhancements and join the celebration of all things the Lion King, as we were just Sweet. referencing. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so Rafiki's good, good, good. Yes, exactly. Uh, Rafiki's Planet Watch will still include uh, the animal encounters guests love, as well as the new experiences that draw from Disney's rich heritage of wildlife animation, featuring a celebration of the Lion King, a special place where our guests and cast members can connect to the magic of nature and see the importance Disney places on animal care and conservation in our parks and around the world. So, nice. yes, uh, that's great. I'm so glad that's coming back. We Definitely. don't have a, a date yet when it's reopening, but um, it will be, and that that's a, good news. Yeah, I was just going to say, good announcement. Yeah, yeah because that's you know, it's a very interactive place, and I know a lot of kids really like it out there, right. and adults too. Sure. I like getting to go out there and, and check that out, and so I'm very glad that Rafiki's Planet Watch is getting set to reopen. And that's it for my Disney stories of the week. Do you have a Disney story? Not uh, this week? I, I don't. I'm going to hold off because it's a very long. Story. That's right. Okay. And, and my actually, my tip is a little long, yeah. I think. Right. Okay. So we, and we don't want your story to go by the wayside in this episode <laughs> because your stories are always so important. So we need to get that. And we also don't want your tip to go by the wayside because... <laughs> Michelle's tips are always the best. I say this every week, and it's uh, absolutely uh, true. If you yeah. haven't listened to our show before, uh, we always wrap up our show with a vacation tip of some sort, something that might help you out in the parks, help you if you're doing Run Disney, help you if you're doing Disney Cruise Line, whatever the case may be. We try and wrap up the show with something that might help you. And as always, you know this from listening to the show if you've heard it before, Michelle's tips are the best. <laughs> And she's wonderful and sweet, and she looks so cute in her little Minnie Mouse headphones right now, by the way, uh, that she always has to lead off because she's just the best. So, Aw, you're so sweet. Without any further ado, here's Michelle's tip of the week. People are probably listening thinking, she's doing some Jedi mind trick over this guy, because wow. I've heard her tips. They're, Jeez, they're uh, just the facts. See. They know. They're just all shaking their heads like, yep, that's right. Yep. Definitely, Michelle's tips are the best. Michelle's the best. Always. I completely agree with you. You're sweet. Well, my tip uh, relates to out here in the West Coast with Disneyland Resort. And it may be a little early to start talking about this, but I'll link it in why it's not. And that is Grad Nights at California Mm. Adventure Park. Um, Personally, we've actually hit upon some visits out there, not necessarily planned to, uh, while grad nights were going on a couple years. And, you know, as a result, we we did see some significant delays with whether you're talking about parking, uh, transportation, you know, the tram getting to to and from the parking, uh, going through security because there's a lot, le- lot more people and getting through the gates. So I uh, wanted to give some advice on if you are going to Disneyland Resort during a grad night time, you know, what to kind of be prepared for if, you know, and if you do have some flexibility in your time, you might want to consider 
moving your your visit to another day. I'm not saying it's all bad, but if you tend to like to go where there's lower volumes, then you might want to avoid a grad night. So, and we'll post the dates on it, but it's a, most of them are Thursdays and Fridays in um, mid to late May and part of June. Uh, there are some that are also during the week. Um, but, you know, the good part of it, I, I just want to first say is that, you know, the, the enthusiasm and the fun that you feel with so many, all these students who are really hyped is really fun. So it's not bad to go during a grad night. So I just want to make sure we understand that. It's just how to prepare for it. You just need to change your expectations a little exactly. bit. Exactly. And, and how to, there's some things you can do to prep. So um, just to be aware, the students are, you know, they have the grad night in the evening at California Adventure. Um, but they are offered when they're making their reservations for this very sweet deals, very inexpensive deals to add on day passes to either one or both of the parks. So that will increase the, the amount of people who are in the parks during those days. Um, so if one of the things I do want to mention right out here is the dates that they made were set back in January. And what's really interesting is one of the dates is May 31st. Oh, my goodness. Really? Oh, yes. Holy cow. <laughs> so it'll be really interesting to see how they're going to manage that with the Galaxy's Edge opening that same day. I mean, obviously, we know that reservations are required to get into Galaxy's Edge, but just with the, the whole vibe and amount of energy on that day. It's going to be really interesting to see how they handle yeah. that. I mean, the good thing about this is grad night is usually held over at uh, Disney California Adventure Park. So right. uh, the, at least that'll be on the other side. But I guess if you're looking to get away from the uh, all the excitement that's over in Galaxy's Edge and right. go over to uh, Disney California Adventure Park, well, you may be running into a little bit more business right. there than you Either expected. Way. And actually, um, the... the the students can buy a ticket to go to Disneyland mm-hmm. as well. So, I don't know. It'll be an interesting day for sure. Right. Wow. <laughs> I, I, you know, but I'm not sure if they've put it all together that that's happening. Yeah. But um, And there's also dates, obviously, in um, the early to mid part of June. So, that's when Galaxy's Edge mm-hmm. is still going to be pretty popular. So well, I think it's going to be pretty popular for the next three, four, five, ten years. years. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but anyways, if you are going during a date where they have the um, the grad nights, um, you know, one of the things that you might want to consider is rope drop. That could be one of your best bets, getting into the park really early. Um, and then using all the services that are available to you, like um, whether you're doing Max Pass on your mobile device or mobile food ordering, you know, th- those kind of things will um, certainly make things a little smoother on that date, those dates as well. Um, the other thing, and that's why I'm bringing it up now, is for Disneyland Resort, you can start making reservations only 60 days out. So we're getting close to the, actually we're in the time frame for some of the earlier dates. Um, so if there's particular, you know, dining reservations that you want in May, you really want to start looking and booking those now because those are going to probably fill up even a little quicker than they would normally. So um, that's something to consider. Now, the the world of color, 
the students do have that during their grad night part, mm-hmm. so they probably won't be as involved in the the regular closing showing. world showing of World of Color. So that you may still be able to score some um, dinner or dessert packages. But um, anyways, just something to consider if you are going to be traveling at that time is the window to start reserving those. Mm-hmm. We're in it now for the earlier ones, and so keeping that in mind can also help make sure you you know have a a better day right you know and then obviously the the main thing to remember is just really pack your patience and mm-hmm. understand and and again this this piece of information is for people who haven't gone to Disneyland in the past and they've only gone to Walt Disney World going through the entrances of the parks is a lot slower process. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different types of passes that people can purchase, and some of these require a picture to be taken. If you're use, if you're going to Disney Walt Disney World, you're used to using your magic band and your finger. Um, here, they still do pictures on mm-hmm. some of these things, and so that can really slow up the process. So just remember, if you're going to Disneyland Resort, either of the parks during a grad night, you know you want to be aware that there is going to be some delays. And that it's going to be a little bit more crowded than what you would expect on some of those dates. Yeah. So plan ahead. Yes. Like Michelle's very right on this. Uh, make sure you do your planning. And if you are planning on going there in those dates, uh, you know, just curb your expectations a little bit. Uh, I know if you were looking to book a, a Disney. Land Resort Hotel during that same weekend that Michelle was just talking about. Forget it, by the way, that the first night, I don't know if the whole weekend, first weekend is sold out, but I know the first night uh, leading into the May 31st opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is sold out. Uh, we were very lucky that we got ours for uh, June first night, yeah. so we we got ahead of the game in that one. But right. uh, you know, be prepared that it's going to be busy on for many reasons. So just. Just plan ahead. And, right. And like Michelle, packing your patience is the perfect way. It's yeah. the perfect way to uh, to approach Disney True. on any time, but especially when there could be some more crowds than maybe you're used to seeing. Right, right. So maybe, again, in moving your plans to earlier in the day. And the other thing to remember, too, is that um, the Disney – Land Resort Hotel and Downtown Disney have really fun and fabulous eateries that you can try out too. So, um, if you were planning to be in the park and it starts getting a little bit, you know, too crowded for you, you know, there's some things right in the same area mm-hmm. that you can enjoy. Yeah, many of the hotels, even the the, the good neighbor hotels that right, are nearby, right. have nice pools. You know, good places to relax, and there are plenty of restaurants around. Uh, you know, take advantage of that time. Maybe get in early, like you right. said, do rope drop, just like you suggested. Uh, get in, knock out a few things during the day, then kind of go as the crowds grow. Because especially with grad night, usually, I mean, yes, there may be some people that keep the tickets and they go the next day as well. Right. But a lot of it's really going to grow in the evening as people are, <laughs> as all the transportation from the various schools are, are getting there in the evening. That's right. when it really starts to get, you see the, the bigger crowd. So maybe you take advantage of it earlier in the day than at night, kind of. Peel back a little bit and right. enjoy the, you know, the hotels and the restaurants and everything around the area. So, exactly. Yes. Uh, good tip. Michelle's tip. Always the best uh, tip. Thank you. For sure. My tip is a quick one, and it's one that we used just yesterday when we mm-hmm. went to the Disneyland Resort. And my tip has to do with parking. Now, we've run into this problem 
a few times. Uh, we like to go and park at the Mickey and Friends parking garage. Now, if you know the parking, the main parking lots for uh, the Disneyland Resort, there are the Mickey and Friends parking garage, which is kind of just outside of Disneyland Park itself, kind of actually uh, near, you can actually see sort of the spires from Black Spire Outpost yeah. at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. It's kind of right back there in that part of the park. Uh, the, the Toy Story Park uh, uh, parking area is the other main parking area that you can use as well. And that's a little bit farther. It's kind of out by the convention center, a few blocks away, a couple miles away. A lot of people like that one. They'll go to that one first. Uh, we don't like that one as much, so we tend to try and go to the Mickey and Friends garage. We just kind of enjoy that one a little more. Now, one of the problems, and probably why the people don't always go to that one, is uh, that sometimes you'll turn the corner to go into the Mickey and Friends parking garage, and they won't be letting people into the Mickey and Friends parking (laughs) garage, whether it's full or not. They'll be kind of blocking off the traffic and make you go past, and then you end up having to go to the Toy Story lot anyway. Well, there is a little hack for this. Sometimes that works. Not Mm -hmm. every time, (laughs) but will sometimes work if... That occurs to you. If you're going down, if you know the directions around Disneyland, you'll be going Ball Road and then turning onto Disneyland Drive to get into the Mickey and Friends parking garage. If you get turned away on that try, then what you can do is give it a shot. I mean, you can just go and do the Toy Story lot and that's fine. Right. You'll get there just fine. Parking's the same price. Doesn't change anything about it. Right. They have nice buses that get you exactly. to there. It's not like you have to walk a couple miles or anything. It's just fine. But if you really want to park in the Mickey and Friends lot, uh, here's a chance that might work for you. Again, it doesn't work every time, but sometimes it does. Uh, go drive. They'll, they'll guide you past the parking garage, and they'll keep guiding you out to, as if you're going to where the, uh, the Toy Story lot is. When you get down Disneyland Drive and you get to where uh, the – turn-in is for the Grand California Resort and Spa. Uh, Take that turn and make a U-turn there. So you're going back the other way on Disneyland Drive. You'll go down Disneyland Drive and you'll see this access ramp that comes into the Mickey and Friends parking structure. That comes from the 5 freeway for people that are heading north from the Los Angeles area or such. Uh, And if you see that the cars are still able to come onto that ramp, and coming into the Mickey and Friends parking garage, that part is open for you. Right. So what you do, if that's the case, you can still access it in this way. Uh, keep following that Disneyland Drive past the, uh, the light where you had turned in uh, and to the end of that ramp. Once you get to the end of that ramp, you have to go through a light and there'll be a place where you can legally make a U-turn. Make a U-turn there. Go back and just get out into that ramp, and you can just cruise right into the Disneyland right. parking structure, uh, just as if you had just come off the five freeway. It helps. It's helpful for us. A lot of people who are coming from uh, L.A. and Santa Barbara or whatever um, don't have that problem because they're just getting off that way anyway, right. off of the five. But if you're coming from or- some parts of Orange County or San Diego, like where we've come from, sometimes you run into that issue. But this is a hack that sometimes works to still get you within that parking structure. Right? Yeah, and and I mean. Like you said, either parking structure is fine and great. Um, our, we c- tend to like that one because um, 
we can also choose to walk to mm-hmm. and from, so we kind of like that for that reason. Um, but yeah, that is it, it. Did work out like a charm when you did that. So. Yeah, it worked. It worked this time. Yeah. And it, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Right. But it's worth a shot. Uh, worst things comes to worst. You just make another U turn right. and go back to the uh, the Toy Story sure. parking lot, like you were going to anyway. But it, sometimes it's worth a shot, and it might save you a little time and a little effort. And yeah, we like to walk sometimes to and from. Uh, the Disney parks uh, going through downtown Disney. And sometimes we hop on the monorail, which stops right. In the, right in the middle of downtown Disney. You can actually access the park. If you're going to Disneyland park uh, through the monorail there. So uh, it's another way to get into it. And maybe you can cut some of the lines that are in the main front entrance sometimes. Right. Um, so just some ways to look at it that are different and interesting. And again, I don't guarantee you this will work every time, but sometimes it does. And right. uh, if I know my telling of it may be a little convoluted there, but so if you have any uh, questions about this and how to do it, feel free to contact us and I'll, I'll explain it more in a probably a better way. Right. <laughs> when yeah. you talk to it's me, I can write out directions or something for you on how to do it. So there you go. That's my tip of the week. That's Michelle's nice. tip of the week, which was, of course, much better than mine, yeah. as always. Uh, but uh, that, there they are. And that wraps up our show. So uh, we are going next week to go see Dumbo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we'll be seeing the live action remake, of course, Tim Burton doing it, of uh, the Disney classic Dumbo. And next week, I'll be giving our spoiler free review of that film. Yes. Uh, maybe uh, maybe we'll do a spoiler segment. I can't tell you yet. We have to see it and right. decide if it's worthy of telling spoilers, <laughs> if it's pretty much shot for shot, uh, the uh, some somewhat to the original. Right. I guess we don't need to give away spoilers. Right. But, yes. Um, but we, we'll kind of. Let you know. And, of course, if we do spoilers, they will be completely separated and there will be some sort of, I don't know, elephant sound for an alarm or something <laughs> that I'll use to separate them so you'll know when it's coming. But we're going to do that. And we may have another topic as well. But, uh, you know, we're looking forward to next week for sure. Absolutely. So uh, thanks again for listening to us today. If you ever want to contact us and get in touch with us about anything in regards to the show, please follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, at Hyperion Podcast, Facebook and Instagram, at Hyperion Adventures Podcast, and you can always email us, Hyperion Adventures Podcast at gmail.com. Right, and we really do love to hear from you, and we'd love for you to tell a friend about our podcast. Mm-hmm. And if even if you have a little extra time, give us a rating. We truly appreciate that. Definitely. A rating, a review, anything would be great. And like I said, just telling a friend about it is just, you know, getting on social media and saying, hey, there's a podcast that I right. like, you know, just letting people know out there, just like we had uh, from the, our friends that joined us earlier, uh, Jonathan and Camille, right. that uh, t- gave us that nice note earlier. Yeah. And so that was so nice of them. And uh, thank you for finding us today in the future, of course. You can find us on our website, HyperionAdventuresPodcast.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and you can subscribe to us there. Uh, that's the easiest way to find us. And by the way, I think I mentioned this earlier, we also have a new YouTube channel that you can subscribe to and check out. We don't have a lot of exciting stuff on there, <laughs> but it's another way we have the podcasts up there. You can find them there. It's a very simple video. It's pretty much just the, whatever is the, uh, the, the cover photo for it, just there for, you know, an hour and 40 minutes or whatever we're doing, however long our episode is. But it's another way you can bring it up and listen to us in some way, shape, or form if it's easier for you. So, And eventually we may be doing some more stuff with some videos from the parks. Eventually I want to start recording our recording sessions. And I know Michelle's excited about that, but you would love it because you can see Michelle in her mini ear headphones and, it's, and see how adorable she is in them. So. Oh, so much fun. So, anyway, 
check that out if you get the chance. But uh, uh, we really appreciate that you joined us again. And uh, thank you for listening to the Hyperion Adventures podcast. And we'll look forward to spending some more time with you again next week. But until that time, I'm Tom. I'm Michelle. And we hope that you have a magical week.